Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ecosystems are declining at an increasing pace. We have the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. 10% of our mammals are gone. Three in the past decade, 17 more species could follow, scientists warn, very soon, become extinct. This is under the watch of an act that's supposed to prevent it. Hello, good people of pods. It's Catherine Murphy and you are on Australian Politics Live. And with me is my dear friend and colleague, Adam Morton, who is in the Tasmanian studio, which I think we've just discovered is a spare bedroom with a couple of doonas in it. Yes, don't forget the doonas. Very comfortable. <laughs> hey, Murphy. <laughs> so that's Adam. People who know Adam's work, of course, will know that he is the wonderful environment editor for Guardian Australia that may give a slight clue as to the conversation that we're going to have this week because there has been a very big development on the environment or environmental regulation front this week. Now, I asked Adam to come in on the pod this week because I have been myself very distracted by the government's economic statement by the future of the job keeper and job seeker payments. So the announcement that was made or the material that came into the public domain this week about the EPBC Act, which is, Adam, explain. The Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, somewhat yes. inelegantly named, I think, but that's e what it is. E yes. Basically, there has been a review into this piece of legislation and some preliminary findings were put into the public domain this week. Now, it's a really important piece of regulation, this Act, which will be clear, I hope, as we get into this conversation. But it's really going to be one of those episodes where I'm going to be asking Adam to explain things to me because, <laughs> as I said, I didn't follow the minutiae of what's happened. So talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. Let's start with what this act is, what it does. What, you know, why, why do we have this act? Okay. So this is, in simple terms, our national environment laws, our set of laws that dictate how we should protect the environment and particularly how we should protect what are known as matters of national environment significance. And by that, we're talking about threatened species. We're talking about world heritage areas. We're talking about internationally listed wetlands, the Great Barrier Reef. And so this act was brought in a tick over 20 years ago under the Howard government by the then Environment Minister Robert Hill. And this we've had this week is the first findings of what is likely to prove the biggest review we've had into it in that time. 
there's been a lot of complaining from people from all perspectives about how the act works. And I mean, it's it's almost friendless to be perfectly honest. You struggle to find somebody who thinks that it is doing what it should do, and we can step through that a little bit. But the basic goal with which it was set up was okay. We need to protect those things that I just mentioned, and we need to allow developments and projects to go ahead. How do we assess how much those developments and projects are going to affect those matters of national environment significance, and and also, we should be using this act to have a look at our species and saying, right, what needs protecting, what needs listing as threatened or endangered or worse, critically endangered, and how do we keep assessing how those species are going and, and what are we doing to try and fix that? They're the goals of the act, which might seem slightly strange because I'm not sure how much it marries up with a lot of the public and the political discussion which we hear about it, which is much more tied to how much more quickly can we get developments done. But that's what the starting point was. And why, uh, without getting into the absolute minutiae of the history of it, does this act exist? Does it exist because the Commonwealth likes to have the scope to intervene in decisions about whether or not big developments should go ahead? I mean, just sitting from my vantage point in Canberra, obviously, it's pretty common for the Commonwealth Government to want to have a lever. It can pull at various times, is that why this legislation developed? Because why? Why does? Why do the? Why don't we just sort of shrug our shoulders and leave it to the states? Well, the underpinning idea is Australia, as we often talk about, has a spectacular, amazing natural resource. Our environment is incredible. If we were to leave it to the states, there'd be much more piecemeal decisions about what we should be allowing, what we should be protecting. Some things are so important, we need to have a national hand in that decision-making process. And yes, federal governments like to be able to intervene and say, yes, this thing should not go ahead. Yes, this thing should go ahead. And you know, it's rare to find a government that doesn't want to have at least have the power to have that say. Of course, the, the backdrop you know, many years before and the hero case from a conservation point of view for federal intervention in environmental approvals was Bob Hawke's decision to block the Franklin Dam back in 83, yes. which he came to power saying that dam would not go ahead and got a big vote against him in Tasmania, but really strong vote to him in mainland states. And I think that the hope for people who care about the environment when the Act came in was that it would be used in a way to allow federal governments to make those sorts of decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. And you said a minute ago that the Act's basically friendless, right? Like that it's just not doing what it was envisaged to do at the time it was passed. So that just begs an obvious question. So what went wrong? Why is why is the Act friendless? Why is it not working? What's the cause of all that? I mean, it's worth just briefly, if you don't mind stepping through what some of the failures have been, because no, let's there, do there, that. there are yep. reams of evidence, and I reckon it's worth just you know, setting some of that down. There have been a stack of reports that have found our environment is in decline and has continued to decline over the last 20 years since it came in, in sharp decline in some places. We've had state of environment reports, national reports, saying that threats to the environment are increasing, ecosystems are declining at an increasing pace. We have the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. 10% of our mammals are gone. Three in the past decade, 17 more species could follow. Scientists warn very soon, become extinct. 
This is under the watch of an act that's supposed to prevent it. And while we have about 1,800 species listed as threatened or worse under the act, or vulnerable or worse, and scientists say there should be many more, particularly after last summer's bushfires. Mm-hmm. Um, while the act has been in place, we have had an area larger than the size of Tasmania cleared, often for agriculture. A lot of that clearing doesn't even come under the Act. that isn't assessed by the Act. But ultimately, you'd think that a national a set of national environment laws is responsible for that when it's failing on that scale. And we've seen in reporting that The Guardian has done, largely through the tireless efforts of our colleague Lisa Cox over the last two and a half years, that there's very little monitoring. We don't really know how the species are going. There's major delays in listing threatened species. We don't do recovery plans. We're supposed to have recovery plans for these species. We don't do them. Mm-hmm. And funding for threatened species projects in some cases hasn't even gone to the benefit of threatened species. So it's disaster after disaster. And then at the same time, we're seeing decisions under the Act for developments, approval decisions, taking longer, at least decisions for major projects. There is some dispute for, and the overall, if we count every project, but for major projects, they are taking longer. So how did we get here? Well, it's an act that was designed in basic terms to give, first of all, the Federal Environment Department and ultimately the Minister discretion over what they do. Yeah. There's a lot that of- labor that, to pull. Yeah. yeah. So mm. ultimately, it's only ever going to be as strong as the Minister of the Day mm. wants it to be. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, that's a very acute ob- observation. Obviously, somebody has to apply the law and somebody- has to have the the will and the focus to apply the law in the way that it's intended. And it's probably fair to say that that's variable, right? I think that's fair. There was a recent Auditor General report that looked at the Act and found it was failing on multiple fronts in its operation and in how the department was enforcing it. And it found there had been more than 5,000 projects approved under the Act and as of June last year, just 21 had been blocked. There's been another one recently, a wind farm in a rainforest was blocked, so that makes 22. Now, you know, obviously the goal of the the Act is to allow sustainable development to go ahead, but when you are averaging one project, there's a decision that just once a year that a project shouldn't go ahead. You can understand why some conservationists say that it's really a form of triage, that it's really, you know, what's the minimum we can get away with mm. in terms of saying we're protecting the environment while really just letting development run rampant. Now, it's always going to be a really complicated question. It's a difficult question. Where do you draw the line between development and environmental protection? But I think there's little evidence to suggest that the environment is winning on that front. Mm. Yeah, well, this is this sort of brings us to the point of the review, which is, what happened this week, or well, sorry, the review didn't happen this week. The review's been going on. It's been going since October, yes. but it feels yes. like 10, 10 years. Yeah, given it feels like centuries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, in COVID years, that's probably about 250. So the review has been going on for quite some period of time. The government has delayed releasing it. People were getting a bit antsy last week because the review still hadn't been produced. Anyway, fortunately, though, the the review was produced finally this week. Now, the reviewer is a bloke called Graham Samuel, who is a sort of businessman, company director, had a stint 
as the chairman of the ACCC at one point, so that's the Competition and Consumer Commission, he was given the task of having a look at the Act. Now, what did our friend Graham Samuel say, Adam? Well, he found he largely supported what everyone else has said about how badly it is serving the environment. He said the environment was in a state of decline, increasingly under threat, and its trajectory is not sustainable. Now, to editorialise for a minute, you could reasonably have missed this if you followed quite a bit of the media coverage this week, <laughs> which skipped straight to the politics. Green tape. And, and, green, and tape. green tape, a term that neither Samuel nor the minister, Susan Lee, actually mentioned when that, launching this on Monday. But the actual report goes into some depth about just how much the Act is failing the environment. And Samuel really yeah. stresses this point. I mean, I think it's really important that we stress that point. This is... Th- this is ultimately the goal of the Act and it's not doing it. And that has to be a major consideration in wherever we go from here. That's obviously yeah, well, the starting point. So No, exactly. And I read just before our conversation, I read the executive summary of the report. I've not yet had uh, the opportunity to read the whole thing. But I was really struck by how comprehensively Graham Samuel accepted that point. There weren't if buts and maybes around his observations, he said current environmental trajectory is unsustainable. He said the EPBC Act has not facilitated the restoration of the environment. You know, incredibly stark language, right, is in yeah. that executive summary. So he's accepted the problem, yeah. right, without any qualifications or shrieking madly about green tape. What happened next? What has he proposed as a fix? So his headline recommendation, he's calls it the foundation recommendation, is for a new set of national environment standards. At this stage, and based on the prototype in fairly simple and environment groups have said vague terms, set out some principles by which developments could be approved or otherwise that they'd have to meet mm-hmm. so that everybody would be clear where the goalposts were and with the goal that these would be interim standards initially and then would become more granular, his favourite word at the moment, granular, mm. over mm. time as- loved, loved of management consultants, granular. Yes. They would become more detailed over time as the government, as the department, hopefully got more data about exactly how a species are and, and, and how they're faring and how many of them there are out there and so forth. But is there a there there? And by that, I mean, obviously, environmental standards I can get, right? Like that's just a bunch of of principles that one would articulate, which then should guide regulatory decisions. But did he give us much flesh on the bones or did he just say we should have these standards and then we'll get a representative group of people in a room and we'll work out what they are? He has an initial set of prescriptions, things like for a couple of examples, vulnerable species, which are the, if you like, the least threatened of the threatened species, but on the on a path to being in a particularly bad way, koalas in some places are listed as vul- vulnerable, should have no net loss of habitat, for example. Right. So yeah. without it going into definition of exactly how we define what no net loss is. And then in other places for critically endangered species, it talks about a net gain in critical habitat to those species. But again, you know, it's a fairly headline level at this point. Mm-hmm. And as some people have pointed out, there hasn't been an update in the register of critical habitat in 15 years. So do we have a really good handle on 
what habitats we're talking about anyway. So there's these, like a set of almost dot points, I suppose, of yep. prescriptions. And the idea now, Samuel says, is that starting next week, he will bring together representatives from uh, across the spectrum of interested stakeholders, as we call them, from farming, mining, business council, environment groups, scientists, indigenous groups, mm-hmm. um, uh, to get together in a room with him and perhaps the minister or the minister's representatives and try over the next two and a half months, nut out an area of agreement on what these standards might look like with the ultimate goal well, in fact, the short-term goal, but the goal being that we would set up standards that everyone was comfortable with and that the states would individually, one by one, sign up to in bilateral agreements with the federal government Mm -hmm. so that the federal government could say, right, now you've signed up to these standards, everybody's happy with them, we'll devolve approval powers just to the states. And the federal government, while having the power to step in if it chose to, would have a much more hands-off role in approving developments on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a sort of interesting model, right, that from the Commonwealth level they set the objectives, for want of a better term, and put some flesh around them and then the states go away and regulate. But it's sort of interesting, isn't it, that the Commonwealth is at one level saying, well, we'll set the standards, we'll devolve the regulation to the states ipso facto, this process will be a lot better for you, people who want to pursue developments because you won't get caught up in the inevitable duplication between a state assessment and a Commonwealth one. But the Commonwealth is not exiting the field. Though. It is not. So, and the Commonwealth is sort of hanging about sort of in unspecified fashion behind this articulated standards and devolved process and could burst out of the cupboard at any point and assert itself in any particular development that became, for whatever reason, politically hot. So I guess a question I would have, and I know we're going to get into what happens next in a sec, but a question just from a standing start, right, having read none of the detail here, with all due respect to the sort of moving parts of this whole process, right, that have not been resolved, I guess I wonder, just as a common sense proposition, whether or not from a business perspective, this really gives them that much. I mean, it gives them one approval for most stuff, but if activists sort of create a call to action around a particular development, increase the political temperature around that, then the Commonwealth is reserving the right to take an interest. So I'm just chucking that one out there because it seems to me to be sort of a bit cute and a bit interesting. So, But anyway, a second ago I said we should get on to what happens now, so we should we should do that a bit. You've touched on that a bit. Samuel's going to get everybody into the room and everyone's going to sing Kumbaya and somehow magically emerge from the room with the same idea about what the national standards will be. Ha ha, forgive my cynicism. Then what happens then? What's the next steps? Well, I mean, happening in a concurrent sense with that is Susan Lee is planning to introduce legislation. So, I mean, this is not even a what then. This is a at the same time, and a really key point is that the minister is planning to introduce legislation in August 
that would set up this bilateral agreement process under which the approval decision would be deferred to the states. Yep. And yep. it will include a prototype version, something quite like what Samuel's put in his report, of these standards before they have finished. <laughs> X, so, X, X. Yeah. It's, now, it's a, now, the minister's argument. Brackets. Well, that's right. That's Close right. And, and, and I think... <laughs> Now there Sign is here. No, no, I'm sorry. Just let me let us both absorb this for a second and let the listeners absorb it, Adam. You, you're talking about a process where, after the Kumbaya or simultaneously with Kumbaya, the government turns up with some ledge in the parliament that says we're going to devolve this to the states, and you guys will sort this all out according to a bunch of standards that we have not yet articulated as the Commonwealth. And by the way, signed here. You know, we will only require your firstborn child in the event that this doesn't pan out. I mean, what planet are we on? Well, no, it's, I mean, so the argument, quite right, point well made, Murph, but the argument, so play the devil's advocate for a second. please. The government's argument is we've waited long enough. This is a 10-yearly review. We had one after 10 years under the Rudd government, which made a bunch of recommendations that didn't really lead to any legislative change. Yeah. So this has already gone on far too long and we must move now. I think the fairly significant argument <laughs> against that is- Move what, where? Right, move where. And there are significant questions about- Let's say this legislation goes into Parliament and gets passed in its current form with the, with the interim prototype standards. Yeah. And states start going, yep, okay, come up with your developments and we'll make assessments based on these, you know, the kind of like- that don't yet exist. Don't the yet exist, those sort of dot X, points. X, X in the ledge. Yeah, so, right, so okay. A okay, so a couple of points about that. These are vague. Environment groups have said they are vague and they are right. These are vague standards, necessarily so. That's not a knock on Samuel here, necessarily. They refer to the information. They are based on and have to be based on a reference to the information we already have about how our species are going. The report says we have bugger all information. It's really bad. We shouldn't be relying on that. That's not enough at this point. Yeah. Now, second point, how do we make sure that anyone who is signing up to these standards is complying? You know, yeah. what's the role well, for this? Samuel yeah, has said exactly. that at the moment, compliance under the Act is a disaster, basically. Again, my word, not his. But in 10 years, we've had 22 infringements, fines totaling less than $230,000. You think about the billions of dollars in development we're yeah. talking about, it's nothing. And, and it seems highly unlikely that there haven't been other cases, at least that would have been worth a look though I don't have yeah. any specific evidence at hand, there have been many cases that have been reported on over time. Samuel's recommendation in the report is for a what he calls a tough cop on the beat, an independent regulator, a compliance regulator. Yeah, well, I was regulator. going to ask you this, yeah, because I just didn't get a chance to absorb whether or not that was what he recommended, that, that that was what he recommended, an independent regulator, yeah? Right. Yes, it was, but now- What uh, did the I, government say, Adam? Well, the government said no- and, oh, uh, we're not going to do that. And then Graham Samuel, I am, I am astonished. I'm astonished. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and and my understanding is, though it has not been confirmed, that we are likely to see some sort of reference to 
regulation and compliance in the legislation that's coming. But we're going to get into a potentially circular conversation here about what does independent <laughs> mean, Murph, because Samuel has also subsequently said that there's been a misinterpretation yes. of what he was saying. And um, When he in- said independent, independent, he didn't actually mean independent? Or, he, or- he means independent in outlook and culture. Culture is more oh. important than structure and says oh. it does not necessarily require a a new agency. So the big push for a long time from across environmental circles, but also legal circles and Labor yeah, has, said they'd introduce one yeah, before that selection is a, to, in, an EPA. An uh, EPA. Yeah, yeah, a national EPA with teeth. And yes. the government. Well, hang and on the government- a minute. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. Like this, yep. we've said up front, dear listeners, hanging in there in this conversation, that this is a session where Adam explains the EPBC Act review to Murph, right? So that is what we're doing here. Just wait a minute, right? So Samuel says in the report, have an independent regulator. Cullum is shocked. Government says, nah. Then Samuel subsequently says, Oh, I didn't mean that independent. I mean, this is a bit weird, isn't it? And I know we're not kicking Graham Samuel because I think, you know, we both agree he's done a pretty good job of just calling this thing for what it is, this debacle for what it is, right? But he is not, as the reviewer of this act, devoid of that background. He's going to know that background because every conservation group in the country is going to have said to him, please create an EPA, right? When he says independent in a report, if that's what he said, the man is not an idiot. The man is going to know what he means by that, but what he subsequently walked that back. Well, that's uh, bizarre. Yeah, I mean, he didn't specifically recommend an EPA, but yes, I think it's reasonable to assume that when you're talking about an independent regulator is someone, and he does make the point that it needs to be whoever has this authority is free from influence by government. Now, the suggestion at the moment seems to be that this role would sit within the department, which obviously, by definition, unless something is- not independent It's not independent. And and I think most people would say that departments are less independent from government than ever. So exactly how we're going to square that circle remains uh, to be seen. But I think it comes back to the point of, well, we're looking to rush through standards without any understanding- of how they would be enforced, while at the same time saying that there is a real need, and Samuel says this, to take steps to restore our environment and stop the decline. So we've got an act that has overseen decline. We've got some new standards that we don't know how they'll be enforced. They haven't been finished yet, but the goal here is to, notionally, stop and reverse the decline. And that is the big question the government has not answered and the minister has not answered, which is how does what she is proposing address the problem that's being faced beyond mm. the green tape issue, which is cutting the decision-making time for approvals? Yeah, so she's saying also- she could do both at once, but there's no explanation for how that will happen. Well, and it's sort of weird too from a kind of Commonwealth-state relations perspective. I know the government will kind of wrap this up with a deregulation agenda, which it is also pursuing with the states as part of the COVID recovery, right? Like people listening to the podcast 
may be aware that that is happening, that there are discussions between Canberra and the states across a range of policy fronts, and this will be wrapped up in that too. But just like I can't see actually what's in it for the state governments to sign up to a process where the standards aren't articulated, where the regulatory regime is entirely unclear, where the Commonwealth's scope for intervention is sort of in the vibe of the thing rather than codified anywhere. I mean, you would think that the Commonwealth is going to need an absolute truckload of cash to get the states across the line on on any such grand bargain. But anyway, we're getting a bit of it ahead of ourselves now. And uh, look, we will, you and I will re- regroup in due course and keep people updated about how this kind of rather, not to put fi- too fine a point on it, insane process is playing out. So because you like to be hopeful, Adam. Um, <laughs> how else do you get through, Merv? Come on. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I can think of a few a few other things. But anyway, let's be hopeful. I think that's always a nice way to end a conversation where I go full nihilism and you go hope. So let's I've just said it's an insane process. It sounds completely like just I I can't describe what this sounds like. What is the cause for hope, Adam? Um can I do that thing where I give you the the reason for not hope and then give the reason for hope? Yes, let's just, <laughs> very briefly. Yes, let's be let's let's represent let's, our private conversations very truly in this. Public I I, yes. I think that the across the board view that the likelihood of all those very diverse groups with very different perspectives coming together and agreeing to a set of standards is small. I think putting it um, mm. uh, mildly, falling back on understatement there for a moment, they've yep. got, and they've got two and a half months, which in the uh, political world is not exactly a mountain of time. And if that doesn't, if they don't come up with something, then my understanding is the standards, the setting of the standards, will fall back to the minister, and she um, or whoever the minister at the time is will make that decision. So, having confidence that those standards are going to be strong and meaningful and granular in the way that Graham Samuel has said they need to be, I mean, I think you'd be crazy at this stage to have that confidence. What all this is going to turn on, though, or at least a significant part of it, is going to be having better data, right? And the Prime Minister did, talking to the Business Council last year, suggest that we would have much better data from a business perspective. It would help them make their proposals, things that they could know had the best chance of getting through. And that Mm -hmm. means data about what species are where and how they're faring and what needs to be done to look after them. Now, if the government was actually prepared to invest in that, and the Prime Minister's true to his word, then you could actually make these things meaningful, and that would be a huge difference. Sorry, you go. Well, hang on. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, like, you could have a species census. It would you be could. cool. What are, you you know, I mean, like all the, all the little koalas could just stamp their little paws. Well, you joke, but this is actually, well, maybe not stamp their paws, but this is actually what we need. We know so little. It is, it is sto- astonishing when you find out, and it needs to be addressed. And analyses have found that the Environment Department budget and equivalent agencies has fallen by 40% since the coalition came into power in 2013. Fallen is a terrible Mm -hmm. word. It makes it sound like it happened by accident. It's been cut. Mm. So if there's a real plan to restore that, to allow that work to be done, then we could see meaningful change. And for all the talk about everything else, it is the funding, and Samuel's report goes to this too, that is the thing that can make a difference. So there's the hope. The government said they want to address it. 
Let's see Get it. Get the data. Yes, have a let's have a species census. I like it. I yeah. like it a lot. I would be up for that entirely. Any other grounds for hope or have we exhausted it? Isn't that enough? No. I, no, I mean <laughs> I, no, look. Um, I, I think that Samuel. I think Samuel is clearly is serious about the work that he's doing, and has found a way through that may be more plausible than some would have thought. Mm. And but I think that the scepticism about how we get from where we are today to where we're going to be in August or October, or in the years ahead, is warranted. So no, well, it's funding quite, it, funding it's- is the key. Yeah, well, I just presume truckloads of cash are backing up as we speak. You can well, hear the obviously. reversing lights as we as we as we conclude this conversation. You can That's hear right. that beep beep beep. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's hope it's not as insane as we think it is. That's my hopeful comment. My next hopeful comment. Thank you, as always, to Hannah Izzard, who's listening in today and producing us both in our remote little studios. So thank you to Hannah. Thank you also to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this program. Thank you guys for listening, for sharing, for doing all of that, Bizzo. And we will be back with another program next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.